I want to start this morning by saying this. What do you think of when I say the word commitment? Commitment. Maybe you think of marriage, certainly commitment in marriage. Maybe you think of keeping true to a promise. Maybe you think of a particular friend in your life who's always been there for you, and you would say of that person, they are a committed friend. Google defines commitment as the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause or activity. The state or quality of being dedicated to a cause or activity. And I think that's a fair definition. I think that that captures what commitment is. But let me ask this. What does it look like? What does it look like to being dedicated to a cause or activity? What does it look like in everyday life? Taken a step further, what does it look like to be committed to the gospel? Previously, in our study on Esther, Haman has formulated a vicious plot to annihilate the Jews simply because of one man, Mordecai, who refused to bow and pay him homage. When Mordecai learns of the plot, he is in great distress and he lays in sackcloth and ashes at the town square. Through her servants, Esther learns why Mordecai is in distress and receives an urgent request from him to go unbidden to the king. And at first, Esther is fearful because the law states that whomever approaches the king unbidden is to be put to death unless the king extends toward them the golden scepter. Mordecai then tells Esther what is probably the most famous line in the book. He says, who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther then requests a fast of all the Jews in Susa, and she herself, along with her maidens, fasts for three days. Last week, we looked at Esther's defining moment. She came to the point where she had to make a choice. She was either going to hide in the palace and let the chips fall where they may, or she was going to take a stand with her people and risk her life. We saw last week that she chose to stand. She committed herself to saving the Jews. But what happens next? What happens after such a choice? What's the fallout? After you commit to something, what does it look like? What does it look like to be committed? In our story, we see that Esther aligns herself with her people, the Jews, and thus she would face the same outcome as they, whether it be life or death. Similarly, as Christians, when we commit to following Christ, we are aligned with him, and thus, he changes us into the men or women he wants us to be. But what does that look like? What does it look like in the everyday life? Well, this morning, I want to look at three aspects of commitment. What is Esther's commitment? What does it look like, and how should that affect our commitment specifically to the gospel? So your first point this morning as we start the the text is point one, commitment to the gospel requires courage. 
Commitment to the gospel requires courage. What is commitment? What does it look like? It looks like this. Join me, if you haven't already, in Esther chapter 5 and verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, Esther and her attendants and all the Jews of Sufa has spent three days fasting. And they were doing this to petition for God's favor, and they were doing it through the discipline of fasting. The three days there is significant. The original readers of the book of Esther would have connected the three-day time frame to other biblical events that spoke of deliverance on the third day. For instance, in Genesis 22.4, it was the third day of their travels when Abraham tied Isaac to the altar to offer him, but God stopped him. It was, of course, three days that Jonah was in the fish and was delivered. And Hosea, you can read this on the screen, promises restoration to Israel. In Hosea 6.2, he writes, After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. So the original readers would have read that, and they would have connected that third day to these events in the Old Testament. You get to us, and what do we think of? We think of the resurrection, of course. After this time of fasting, Esther prepares herself. Do you see it says she put on her royal robes? She's preparing herself to face the king. The text says she put on these royal robes, but that's literally translated put on royalty. She put on royalty. Now, the author does not describe the robe, but being queen of Persia, her wardrobe would no doubt be exquisite. So picture in your mind, and you've seen these from movies, picture in your mind a long gown, colorful, richly adorned, broad-sleeved, belted. It was very typical of the noble women in Persia back then. So she's not showing up in everyday clothes. Why? I remember when Prince William married Catherine Middleton, personally... I couldn't have cared less. But I heard of Americans waking up super early because of the time difference in England just to see the bride's dress. Why? Every bride dresses up for the occasion. They present themselves in their absolute best because they're ultimately presenting themselves. Esther dons her royal robes as a representation of her position. She's dressing for the purpose. No mere tunic is going to do here. Just as a man would put on armor to present himself as a soldier, she's putting on her best to present herself as a queen. She gets ready, and then look what happens. And she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. She stands in the inner court. This is outside the area where the king sits on his royal throne. It's opposite the entrance, and that's intentional so that he can see her. And then she waits. There's an interesting bit of irony here. You remember from chapter 1 that Vashti was summoned and she breaks the law by refusing to come to the king. 
Here in chapter 5, Esther is not summoned, but she breaks the law by coming to the king. She sees him, and he sees her. And she waits. Archaeological evidence suggests that a guard with an axe stood behind the Persian king, ready to kill anyone who approached unbidden. So imagine the scene with me. Esther stands there in her best gown, and she's waiting. The king sees her. Now, the king's not alone. Kings are hardly ever alone. There were advisors around him, wise men. There were guards, and probably even this this guard with this axe. And everyone sees Esther. And there's a moment. Maybe they held their breath as the gravity of the situation sets in. What's she doing? Why is she here? Doesn't she know the king could literally have her head? Perhaps the hands on the guard's axe tighten as he waits for the word from the king. Note something here. The author of the book of Esther conceals her emotions. He doesn't tell, her, tell us what she felt. There's no account of how she feels. There's no description of sweat rolling down her forehead or her hands twisting nervously or eyes darting to the nearest exit. She appears from the text to simply stand there and patiently wait to either be admitted or for the axe to fall. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor. She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Was there a sigh of relief? Did a breath of thanks escape her lips? Did the crowd in the king's chambers let out an audible, the text doesn't tell us, but I like to think so. The king saw her, and the text says she won favor in his sight. In other words, he's pleased with her. And this idea of winning favor, it's the same that we read about in chapter 2, When Esther won the favor of everyone who encountered her, you remember everyone liked Esther. That favor has not gone. King Ahasuerus holds out the golden scepter, which was the protocol that the king would do when accepting such a gesture. And the scepter, by the way, was a kingly instrument used as a symbol of authority. It's interesting, in Numbers 24, 17, Balaam the seer actually predicts Jesus' coming by saying, I see him. But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's a picture of Christ and his authority. Ahasuerus holds out the scepter as a way of authorizing Esther's approach. What does she do? Look at the rest of verse 2 with me. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. 
by extending the scepter, Ahasuerus is extending life. And Esther is accepting it. One commentator compared Ahasuerus extending the scepter toward Esther to God the Father extending the cross to humanity. Have you touched the tip of the cross? Have you received life by embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Let me urge you, if you're sitting in this room this morning and you do not believe in the gospel, you have not made Jesus your king, then let me explain. He came to take away sin from the world. And by repenting of our sin and believing in him, we can touch the scepter. We can become children of God. If you have questions about that, I I urge you. Come talk to me after the service. Verse 3. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, this is the first time that she has been addressed in the text as Queen Esther. Three times through the next couple of chapters, the king asks her this question. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, let me clarify. He wasn't really ready to give her half the kingdom. That's a figure of speech. King Herod, in Mark chapter 6, says the exact same thing to Herodias' daughter after she danced for him. He says, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now, if that was a real request, then I'd be like, oh, I'd like half your kingdom, please. But it's not. It's just a figure of speech. Herod wasn't ready to give a teenage girl half his kingdom. It's simply meant to mean, I'll be generous. I'll give you what you want. Ahasuerus is saying the same thing to Esther. He knows, by the way, that she wants something. That's obvious, for no one would risk their life by going unbidden to the king unless there's a desire or a burden or something on their heart that they see no other way to get. He knows she wants something. Now watch what she says, verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. Commitment. Commitment requires courage. Esther is courageous. She's not the compliant girl anymore. She has risked her life, and it's paid off. If commitment requires courage, then I must ask, what are you committed to? And if we're specifically talking being committed to the gospel, then I ask, how committed are you to Jesus Christ? In what ways are you being courageous for Jesus? How, like Esther, would you be willing to risk it all, to lay it all on the line for the sake of Christ? What even right now might the Spirit be putting on your heart, pushing you to live courageously for the gospel? Now, I want to say something here. Make no mistake. God wants you to be courageous. He's given us his word. He's given us the spirit. He's promised to always be with us. He wants you to be courageous for the gospel. But that doesn't mean that the outcome of your courage is going to be just like Esther's. 
You might put it all on the line. And the proverbial axe may fall anyway. That doesn't mean you failed. That doesn't mean God wasn't in it. If Ahasuerus had taken offense at Esther's approach and the axeman had hacked her down, that would not have made her actions any less courageous or any less obedient. Jim Elliott, you know him, the missionary to the Alka Indians in the 1950s, he and four others courageously tried to take the gospel to the Alcas in Ecuador. And they were slaughtered for their courage. Did that make their act of courage any less than Esther's because they perished and she did not? Of course not. Be courageous for the gospel, but remember, the outcome may not be what you expect. That doesn't make it any less courageous. That doesn't make it any less obedience. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now back up for a second because it's interesting here. Think about it. Esther doesn't broach her concern. She delays. Instead, she requests that the king and Haman come to a feast. Why? She had the king's attention. This was her moment. What is she doing? Why didn't she make a request? Why didn't she expose Haman right there in the audience hall in front of everybody? Because she's clever. She has a plan. She's doing something intentional here. She's not avoiding the issue. By inviting the king and Haman to a feast, she flatters them. She flatters them, causing them to drop their guard. What she's doing is she's trying to set up the perfect moment when the guard is down and she can do what she needs to do. Again, she's not the compliant girl anymore. She's not just doing what she's told. She's making the requests. She's doing the planning. She's calling the shots. The king and Haman come to this feast. By the way, this is the sixth feast that we read about in the book of Esther. Ain't no party like a Persian party. <laughs> Perhaps it's not as, this feast was not as extravagant as the first couple of feasts that we read about, but it would have no less been impressive. Persian banquets were sumptuous, and often they would cook a whole animal. You've seen like a pig on a spit. They would cook a whole animal. But their choice of meat was a bit odd for our palate. For instance, at times they would cook a whole camel or a donkey. I'm going to stick to my steak, thank you. <laughs> to each his own. Persians also loved desserts. Banquets were full of desserts. And of course... We know this already, lots of wine. Interestingly enough, though, Persian feasts were dignified rather than gluttonous, unlike the Romans, who, if sources are to be trusted, would force themselves to vomit so they could eat more. That's pleasant. They have this feast, and then look at verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, this is the second time he asks this. He's going to ask it one other time. He's not dumb. Well, not in this sense. We've already seen he's not a great leader. But he's not dumb in this sense. He knows she wants something. He knows that she has an agenda. And he's perfectly fine to go along with her plan because feast time, baby. 
And fortunately for her, he's saying, I'm willing to be generous. And do you see, there's even a little change in the way he says it at the end of verse 6. He says, just like the last time, even to the half of my kingdom. But then he adds, it shall be fulfilled. That wasn't there the first time. This is practically a promise. Whatever you want, it shall be fulfilled. If you have a king saying that to you, then you've got him right where you want him. This is her moment. She's got the king and Haman in her private quarters. Now she can unveil Haman for who he is. Now she can expose the plot that threatens her and her people. By the way, interesting thought. How would it have felt for Esther to have sat next to Haman during this feast? What would have gone on in her soul as she conversed with him? Did she laugh along with the conversation, giving every impression that she was honored to have Haman at her table? The text doesn't tell us anything of her emotions, but she appears as cool as a cucumber. The king asks Esther what she wants, and this is her moment, but watch what happens. Verse 7, then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Do you see how she builds the tension here, even in the way she says this? My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, come back tomorrow. I mean, she's really building the suspense here, but she delays again. Why? What is she doing? She's looking for the right moment. I said it before, she's trying to gain their confidence. She wants the king and Haman in her pocket so that when she drops the bomb, she'll completely blindside them. She's clever. She is luring Haman into thinking that she respects and honors him. She has carefully crafted a marvelous plan bolstering the egos of the king and Haman. You know, it's interesting. Think of the irony. Haman Divisor of a vicious plot against the Jews is himself falling to another plot, a cleverer plot, Esther's plot. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. I read that somewhere. Here's your second point from our text commitment to the gospel excels with cleverness. Commitment to the gospel excels with cleverness. Not only is Esther courageous here, she's also clever. Her plan to lure the king and Haman into her confidence is masterful, and she's gaining their trust to the point that they're not going to see what's coming. She's clever, and commitment excels with cleverness. Commitment, by the way, doesn't require cleverness like it requires courage. You must be courageous in order to show your commitment, especially when it comes to the gospel. But you don't necessarily have to be clever to be committed. However, when we are clever, it excels what we're trying to do. You can be committed to the gospel and go out with all the courage and no plan and fall flat on your face. Or 
you can pause and pray and ponder and go with a clever plan. You know, over the centuries, the gospel has been shared in many clever ways. For instance, in China, their word for righteousness is made up of two Chinese characters. The first character is for me, for self, when you're writing about self. And the second character is the character for scapegoat or lamb. And when they write the character, they write the character for me, and then they write the character for scapegoat over me. In this way, Chinese Christians can explain to non-believers that a man needs a scapegoat or a lamb in order to be righteous. That's a clever way to use language to share the gospel. Like I said, commitment to the gospel doesn't require us to be clever, but it does excel or enhance our ability to evangelize. Many years ago, I worked for UPS unloading trucks at 2 in the morning. And if you've ever been to UPS at 2 in the morning, you're crazy. But if you have, you'll know it's a hopping place. I once compared it to Santa's workshop, only dirtier. While I was there, there was a guy there who claimed to be an agnostic. He didn't believe it was possible to really know anything about God. He didn't claim to believe or disbelieve in God. So I launched into why I believe what I believe, and I I gave some arguments for God's existence. And I have to tell you, it wasn't well received. Now, his reception wasn't my responsibility, but as I look back, I could have been gentler with my words. In fact, it may have been even a better approach to use questions instead of just launching into an argument for the existence of God. It would have been cleverer of me to try to draw him out, asking why he believed what he believed instead of me just trying to prove my point. See, being clever doesn't mean we need this complex plan. It can be quite simple. It just takes a little forethought. And of course, of course, of course, dependence on the Holy Spirit. So just one question. How can your life present the gospel in clever ways? Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when he saw Haman, when he saw Mordecai, In the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now, these verses, 9 through 14, are bracketed by Haman's glee. He leaves the banquet glad of heart, the text says, and by the end of this passage, he's happy again. But something happens in the middle. His happiness is robbed by one man's refusal to honor him. Haman's joy is controlled by someone else. We're told when Haman sees Mordecai refusing to honor him, he is filled with wrath. And that's the same word that we found in chapter 3 when Haman first noticed that Mordecai refused to bow. Haman's heart here has not changed. Note the contrast between Esther and Haman. At the possibility of facing death, Esther hides her feelings. Sitting at the table with the man trying to annihilate her people, Esther is cool. But Haman 
is driven by his emotions. We see here that he's got a serious case of mood swings. He's happy and joyful. He sees Mordecai. He's filled with wrath. And that actually makes verse 10 a little interesting to me. Read it with me. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. There's a surprising element of self-control here. If there is anything positive to be said about Haman, he did have a moment of self-control. He didn't just blow up at Mordecai. We might have expected that, but he doesn't. Look what he does instead. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Now, what in the world is going on here? When was the last time that you invited all your friends over simply to boast about yourself and your accomplishments? If you're planning that, please don't invite me. I mean, this is absurd. To say that Haman had an inflated ego is to underestimate reality. I'm surprised he could get his overly large head through the king's gate. Look at what he does. What is he doing? He's going to where he's comfortable. He's going to where he's honored. He's going where all the attention is on him. He summons his wife and his friends to further inflate his ego. He couldn't get the satisfaction he wanted with Mordecai, so he's trying to get it from everyone else. And after recounting to his wife and his friends everything that they honestly already knew, he says something they may not know. Look at verse 12. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come, to the king, come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That's just sad. Everything he has and all his accomplishments are nothing because of one lowly guard. What does this tell us about Haman's heart? That he covets attention. Haman's idol is wanting the praise of other people. Aren't you glad we don't struggle with things like that? Let's just be honest. What's your idol, Harvest? What's your idol? What's at the bottom layer of your heart? Maybe you don't even know. The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. How do I know what's in my heart? Well, in relation to our text, what makes you angry when you don't get it? Haman's in a rage because he didn't get Mordecai's praise. What gets you all worked up? Could that be a clue to an idol in your life? You know, there's another way we can look at this situation. One author, one commentator writes this, hatred and prejudice blinds Haman to his abundance. How much did Haman have? He was the second in command of the kingdom of Persia. He had a wife and we're told later, 10 sons. And he had lots of friends, although I might prefer the term brown nosers, but whatever. Haman probably had way more than anyone in this room, probably even way more than all of us put together. 
and yet he was discontent all because one man wouldn't bow. Where are you discontent? Could that be a clue to the idols in your life? Haman couldn't enjoy the immense gifts he had because there was one thing he didn't have, Mordecai's respect. Not unlike King David. He had everything his heart could want except Bathsheba. What is the one thing that often robs you of Christ's joy? Could that be a clue to an idol in your life? Verse 14. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. It should bother us very much how easily Zeresh and Haman's friends came up with this solution. Human life meant nothing. You know, there's a resemblance here between Zeresh, Haman's wife, and Jezebel, Ahab's wife. You might remember the story from 1 Kings 21. King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. When Naboth refused to give him the vineyard, King Ahab was sad. In fact, the text tells us he was vexed and sullen, and he pouted around the house, excuse me, palace. Ahab's wife Jezebel, lovely woman, then had this plot hatched that falsely accuses Naboth and had him executed. Crude, vicious. Zeresh and Haman's friends are no different. Contrast these two plots. Esther has a carefully crafted plan to lure the king and Haman into her confidence, whereas Zeresh has a crude and vicious plan to have Mordecai executed. Two plans, one crafty, one crude. By the way, the gallows here is not like what you would see in a Western movie with a wooden frame and a hangman's noose. If that's what you're thinking, sorry to disappoint you. It's more likely what it's referring to here is a spike, a wooden spike for impaling a human corpse. They were saying one of two things here. They were saying put him on the spike and kill him or kill him beforehand and put him on the spike. Either way, they were going to put him on the spike and 50 cubits is roughly 75 feet. Now, it's thought that the highest building in Susa was the great audience hall, probably less than 70 feet. So in other words, what they're saying is here is hang up Mordecai's corpse so that it's the highest structure in the city and everyone can see it. In other words... Send a message. This is what happens to people who cross Haman. Let's ask a question. Why now? Why execute Mordecai now and not wait for the annihilation edict that is in effect and can't be revoked? Well, think back with me to the idea of the book of Esther being a cosmic chess game. Remember that? We referred to that a few times in our study. The book of Esther is almost like a cosmic chess game between God and Satan. And Satan has made his move, threatening all the Jews. Then God makes his move, using Mordecai to get Esther to approach Ahasuerus. 
Satan then goes after Mordecai. Why? What would happen at this point in our story if Mordecai were killed? Would Esther lose her nerve? Would she be unable to expose Haman? Would her fear and timidity return? Maybe. We don't know. But as we've seen all through this book, there are forces at work behind the scenes. God and Satan are at work behind the the events that are happening in Esther. So here's your third point. Commitment to the gospel necessitates caution. Commitment to the gospel necessitates caution. Commitment necessitates caution because the more you are committed to the gospel, the more the enemy has you in his sights. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying be cautious about being committed. Absolutely not. Be committed. What I am saying is be cautious because when you are committed to the gospel, Satan's right there. And he's going to throw everything he can at you to try to get you to fall, to try to bring dishonor to the Lord. You know, we see this in the book of Job, don't we? Why did Satan go after Job? To get him to curse God. And the more you commit to being a follower of Jesus Christ, the more he's going to be after you. So we must be committed to the gospel, but we must be cautious about the enemy. We must be careful not to fall prey to the enemy's traps. The Bible tells us he is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you might think to yourself, how can I be cautious of a foe I can't even see? It's a fair question. My answer would be, know the enemy's tactics. Know the enemy's tactics. John 10.10 tells us that the devil is a thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Know his tactics. He has many. I want to give you three. Number one, he's a liar. He's a liar. Satan is a liar. So beware of the lies that come at you and ask yourself this question. What lies do I believe? Number two, he's a tempter. You know this. He is a tempter. He tempts us to sin. How are you tempted with sin? We all have our temptations we're more susceptible to than others. How are you tempted? Be wary of that. Thirdly, he's a discourager. He wants to discourage you in your walk with the Lord. He wants to cast doubt on God. How do you struggle in trusting God? Be wary of these tactics and fight back. How do we fight back? We fight back, first of all, you fight lies with the truth. When a lie comes at you, such as you're nobody, you're failure, you fight back with saying, no, the truth is I'm a child of God. When temptation hits you, you respond with appropriate scriptures like our Savior did when tempted by Satan in Matthew 4. And when you are struggling to trust God, you preach the gospel to yourself. Know Satan's tactics and fight back appropriately. And remember this. Satan is doomed. His fate is set and his destruction is imminent. Yes, the Bible calls him a roaring lion. 
but he ain't got no teeth. There's honestly nothing that he can do to you, not ultimately. Beware of his tactics and fight back appropriately. Esther was committed, and she showed her commitment by being courageous, risking her life. She was clever, devising a plan to gain Haman's and the king's confidence, and she was cautious. She didn't let her emotions betray her. 500 years after Esther, another courageous person would stand in the gap between the king and the doom of all mankind. Another would stand before the king where no human could go and live. But there would be no scepter stretched out to him. There would be no life-giving gesture to spare him. He would stand in full view of the king and receive not favor, but wrath. Jesus was positioned to do what no one else could do. Jesus was committed to do what no one else could do, and he did it willingly. The courage of our Savior won for us the salvation from a peril worse than annihilation. The courage of our Savior took us from the doom that we should have borne and gave us instead the opportunity at salvation. He took the axe so that you and I don't have to. Let that truth saturate your hearts. Let that truth about your Savior penetrate deep and watch your commitment grow in courage, cleverness, and caution. Be committed to the one who's eternally committed to you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, you are truth. Jesus, you are justice. Jesus, you took what should have been ours. You went to that cross willingly, committed to doing what none of us could do. And now out of your grace and your love and your kindness, you extend to us eternal life and not just eternal life, but hope, but strength to live this life, but promises that will not falter. Lord, make us courageous for you. Make us clever for you. Help us be cautious of the enemy. Jesus, we give you glory and praise and thanks in your awesome name. Amen.